Our panel in studio this morning, Tanya Ward of the Children's Rights Alliance, Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway, and Breda Brown, PR director of Unique Media. Thanks for all of you for coming in uh, to be with us this morning. And I'll just take a look at some of the stories making the headlines for this Sunday morning. We shall begin with the Sunday Times. Uh, and we should say lots of the papers have lovely photographs of Shane Lowry today saluting the crowd and uh, also that cracking smile he had yesterday evening after a pretty impressive day yesterday at Port Rush. We'll come to that in a second. Lots on the front page of the Sunday Times too about uh, the FAI and Mark Ty and Paul Rowan writing here uh, about John Delaney. And they say that John Delaney, the former FAI, FAI chief executive was being investigated in relation to four separate allegations when he agreed to go on gardening leave last April. Now, Mark Ty was in studio with us yesterday morning and he did promise some FAI related stories in today's Sunday Times. They also have a story today that Gardaí apparently tried to hack into a social media group used by Irish football supporters last year over concerns that they were planning a protest against John Delaney, according to the FAI's head of security. So the Sunday Times have got a look at some emails apparently sent around in the FAI. Uh, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, lots about Lisa Smith across the papers today. John Mooney writing here that Lisa Smith is the subject of an international criminal investigation into her involvement in Islamic terrorism by Garda Special Branch and the FBI and apparently Gardaí are gathering evidence with a view to prosecuting her under the Criminal Justice Terrorist Offences Amendment Act Act 2015 which allows people to be charged with offences if they've committed or encouraged others to participate in the commission of terrorist acts abroad and of course Lisa Smith fast becoming a household name because of the number of media interviews she's doing both on TV and in uh, newspapers as well. On to the Sunday Business Post another topic of discussion I imagine in lots of households is insurance premiums and Peter O'Dwyer has a story here uh, which says that insurance companies are facing fresh demands to slash their premiums and also explain to all of us the soaring cost of cover after a new report shows that personal injury awards fell by 9% while insurance costs skyrocketed in recent years. And this is the thing that lots and lots of people have been saying is that their insurance premiums when they're up for renewal are being increased and that's businesses, events, parties and indeed private people who want to get car insurance and various different things I'm sure our panel will have a lot to say on it. Uh, Also, drive-offs cost petrol stations over €2 million each year. Something maybe we don't think about too much, but Killian Woods has the story that petrol stations are losing millions of euro every year because people are driving off and not paying for their fuel. And what doesn't help is that forecourt operators don't want to talk about the problem because then they worry that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because the problem becomes more widespread because people might think, oh, there's a good idea. I can drive off and get my fuel for free. But the Irish Petrol Retailers Association says that petrol Petrol stations here are losing out on more than two and a half million euro every year because people are driving off and not paying for their fuel. And finally, just for now, to look at the front of the Sunday Independent. And they tell us that uh, a number of pensioners in this country are getting €1,000 extra a year in a pension payback. More than 16,000 pensioners have seen their weekly payments topped up by over €20 a week after the government had to review a pension anomaly which left them out of pocket. This goes way back to 2012 and there's been huge campaigns on this uh, when the pensions, how pensions 
pounds were calculated was changed in 2012 and it's an issue that mostly affected women who left the workforce to care for children. Now 16,000 of them are getting €20 extra a week but Willie O'D of Fianna Fáil says that they're still not getting what they should and the system is still completely unfair. So that's a look at some of the Sunday newspapers. Our panel, as I say, Tanya Ward of the Children's Rights Alliance, Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway and Breda Brown, PR director of Unique Media. And Larry, apologies for dragging you away from the golf. (laughs) Great great pictures of Shane Lowry on the front of uh, most of the newspapers today. You were up at the tournament. Yeah, I was up there on Monday of last week for a practice round, and I have to say, uh, what an extraordinary venue. I think that it's uh, rightly the people of Northern Ireland have a lot to celebrate there and the, the job they've done in putting together a spectacular event, and I hope uh, the Open will get it. We'll, we'll look at Portrush to get on its rotation, and it, it will be back before too much longer. Um, you said it was a very impressive round of golf by Shane Lowry yesterday. It was an extraordinary performance uh, by Shane Lowry. Um, he's four shots ahead going into today. He tees off at 140. Four shots ahead. He doesn't need to be spectacular again today. He just needs to shoot a good round of golf. Uh, and I think he'll he'll be holding the Claret Jug at the end of the day. Yeah, it's not the first time that Shane Lowry has been four shots with a four-shot lead going into the final day. But he's been saying a lot recently that he's feeling very good mentally. Do we have to be careful here that we don't, as I've said before, put the cart before the horse? We're all getting very excited here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, anybody who plays golf knows how quickly it can all fall apart, even to the very best players in the world. Uh, you mentioned the mental side of the game. That's key today. If Shane keeps the head, plays like he can, uh, he should win this tournament. And he's not teeing off until 10 to 2. Breida, you're a keen golf fan, are you? <laughs> not, not at all. But I thought what was interesting is I think he is taking it in a stride because yesterday he was saying that he got lucky with the weather today. You know, just happened to avoid the fact that it's probably a lot of it is down to talent. But it actually reminded me um, of a quote from another South African uh, golf player, actually, uh, Gary Player. And one of the quotes he's most well known for is, the more I practice, the luckier I, luckier I get. <laughs> so I think uh, Shane Larry can, can think about that one today. Indeed, absolutely. OK, well, listen, best of luck to him. We will have a, an update uh, on the golf in general in the next hour. And of course, we'll have updates right throughout the day. He tees off at 10 to 2. When are we likely to know, Larry? Uh, well, accounting for about a little over a four hour round, we should know in around six or quarter past six, we should know what the outcome is. Tea time. Literally. Boom, boom. Tea time for tea time. Okay, right. Well, that's the the nice positive news. Maybe not so positive is where we'll all be at the end of October because of Brexit. Um, And it's interesting, Simon Coveney is out today in the uh, London edition of the Sunday Times writing a very serious letter just pointing out how serious this all is. And of course, we have it here at the Sunday Times too. Tanya, have you had a look at the letter? What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean... uh Really, what you see, I suppose, is, is is Coveney is laying it out really to the UK government that we have some serious concerns. We both signed up to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. We agreed to secure peace on, on the island of Ireland. And he's also outlining, I suppose, the economic and social consequences that's going to happen to Northern Ireland in the context of a no-deal Brexit. Um, what, and- did, what did you take most from the letter? Because some people are saying, you look at the UK media this morning, they're, they're shocked at some of what he's saying and, oh, he's really laying down the facts but we've heard this for three years from Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar. That's right. I think what he's doing is he's laying down first principles for a potential renegotiation of the backstop or for a change of wording. I think that's what he's doing. And if I was the Irish government uh, and I had to find a way out of this, I'd be laying out the first principles. Okay, you give me a scenario where we can protect Northern Ireland from the social and economic decline that's going to happen, where we can actually safeguard the kind of contact that's happening between people living in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. You tell me how we're going to maintain a security 
secure peace in Northern Ireland because everyone knows that it is a the environment in Northern Ireland, particularly because there's been no storm out, everyone's afraid of the return to violence. There's a lot of communities in Northern Ireland that have lost out. Uh, uh, Young Protestant men, unionist communities have no jobs, um, really uh, have no role, no voice in their communities. But you get the same on the national side as well. Places like Derry, for example. So Dublin knows this. And Dublin knows it's in the driving seat and it has to make sure that it's not responsible for a return to violence. And that could happen. Breda, with your communications hat on, the fact that he's written this letter in a big Sunday newspaper, the fact he's gone on the last Mar show of the season this morning, what's the strategy there? To date, the Irish government have been quite quiet, actually, in relation to everything um, running up to the, the selection of the, of the new leader of, of the UK. Well, he was, he was out a few weeks ago warning us of doomsday scenarios. Well, they haven't, but they haven't been sort of rattling the bell, I don't think, too much. They've been warning us, as in Irish business owners or Irish consumers, but they weren't necessarily focused uh, directly on Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt. We're now in a position where we know, probably, uh, barring an earthquake, uh, what's going to happen in uh, on Tuesday. So... It was. They were waiting basically to see who was going to get in. I'm delighted to see this letter today because it is essentially putting it out there and reminding Boris Johnson we're here and we're not going away. And yes, while the letter does tell us everything that we already know, that the backstop exists basically to, to protect the Good Friday Agreement, which the UK and the EU agreed to, uh, this may come as news to some, some people who live there, but he's literally just laying out the points again to remind them that this is the situation um, and laying down the gauntlet in advance of Tuesday. So once Tuesday hits, again, to date, Boris Johnson has just been a commentator in all of this. From Tuesday, once he gets selected, he is going to be the main player and that's who they're going to have to engage with. The other issue is the government don't know what Boris Johnson they're going to get. They don't don't know if they're going to get the, the focused one who can get things done or the mad bad one, as uh, Michael McDowell called him today in the, in the Sunday Business Times or the Sunday Business Post, uh, the mad bad one who could come out with God knows anything. So I think that's that's pretty much the strategy. Larry, in Simon Coveney's letter, he talks about um, it doesn't really matter about who the personality is in number 10 this Wednesday after Tuesday's vote. The facts are the facts. Um, and that's very interesting because a lot of the focus on Boris Johnson has been about his personality. Yeah, I mean, I, I would absolutely first agree with uh, with Tanya on the context and the background and the strategy here. And I think Breed is absolutely right. It's no mistake at the timing of this letter. It's it, it's it's there because uh, we're going to have a new prime minister very shortly. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is all personality, and Boris is whether you like him or loathe him is a larger than life personality. I think uh, Amber Rudd's quote in the in the Sunday Times today was very interesting from 2016 that Boris is the life and soul of the party, but he's not the person you want driving the car on the way home. Now now he's uh, driving the bus home, apparently, yeah, yeah. or could so, be. So it's uh, it's in that context. And I think what, what Coveney really is trying to get across here is, uh, you know, whatever your sentiments are, uh, Prime Minister, you know, for instance, this week he was quoted as saying, you know, why isn't Varadka called Murphy like the rest of them? Uh, whatever your sentiments and whatever your personality, the realities for the people in particular on the ground in Northern Ireland uh, are very much the same. Uh, and we are going to continue to negotiate and work on this as best we can from that perspective and with our own best interests at heart. But there's a very difficult, tricky tightrope uh, that the government has to walk between now uh, and October. And I think Owen Harris is writing about this in the Sunday Independent today uh, about whether there is some room for fungibility around uh, the backstop. Uh, and that's the question that we just don't know the answer to. 
Yeah, and the, the, some of the UK media outlets this morning are reporting uh, about the fact that Simon Coveney essentially says that we want to, uh, for the we're going to have a very good, we hope to have a good relationship between the EU and the UK, which would make the backstop unnecessary. We've been hearing that for three years here. Why are they so shocked in the UK about this? Yeah, you know, it's again, it's it's a bigger question, I think, than the, than the pointed one you, you've put to me. Uh, it is this idea of the relationship between our, between the two countries, and I suppose what people in the in the UK think about Ireland still, and I think that's still an issue. We even see, sorry, yesterday, just sorry to go back to the golf, <laughs> but even yesterday, you know, we have people uh, on Sky News saying that 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 Lowry is British, and wouldn't it be great to have a British winner? Um, there, there's bigger questions. Own, there's bigger know? there's bigger questions there about the relationship uh, between the two countries. And I think that post-Brexit, it's going to be fascinating to see what that relationship evolves into. Tanya, can I ask you, Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the focus on the politics of Brexit or even on business relationships after Brexit, you're from the Children's Rights Alliance. Can you see any impact for children on this island as a result of Brexit? I think a, a no-deal Brexit raises really serious uh, concerns for us, uh, particularly because EU law deals with lots of different situations where, let's say, there's a transnational element. So an example of that is, um, if you think of uh, images of uh, the, the exchange of images of child abuse, uh, UK police force, let's say, they identify images of child abuse and they see that there are children in those images that could be Irish. EU law allows them to communicate with the Irish police um, and exchange that information so the Irish police can then go off, the Gardaí can go off and do an investigation. And that's actually a normal part of the way the guards do their do their job. They actually have a victim identification unit in Harcourt Street that looks at these images of child abuse to try and work that out. And it's part of how they, how they operate. If you take another example, um, refugee child arrives in Ireland unaccompanied. They work out, the authorities here work out, actually there's a family in London uh, related to this child. EU law allows that child to be transferred to London. And in the event of an ODL Brexit, those particular scenarios there's going to be a gap in the law we're not going to be able to exchange that kind of intelligence and, and information and it's really worrying from let's say a sex trafficking point of view people are very worried about how it's going to impact on the guardies' ability to be able to do their job but I think more generally uh, and this is where the backstop comes up uh, is the impact on the minds uh, and, and the psychology of children and young people because you have a generation of young people and children that have grown up without the border Right. And anyone that who lived while the border was in operation will tell you it did have a big impact on how they thought about themselves and whether they went to Northern Ireland or not. And it hasn't been there. So you've got 50,000 children that have friends, go to school across the border every day, go shopping across the border. They don't know there's a border there or that there was a border there. So we'll be very concerned about the impact on that. And both north and south of that border, you have higher rates of child poverty. And that's because there was a border for a long time. Really worried about the impact of what a border will do to the children and young people around those counties. Breda, that's something we don't hear an awful lot about is children and Brexit. No, and there was another issue during the week in relation to divorce and Brexit uh, where apparently it may not be recognised if you were divorced in the UK, it may not then be recognised in the EU. So I think there's a a lot of other aspects and things we haven't even possibly thought of yet and they won't come up until they end up maybe before the courts. But another interesting point as well, I think, which is slightly concerning is during the week, Boris Johnson uh, was doing an interview and he was saying that one of the things he's looking for forward to, if, if he is made Prime Minister, one of the first things he will do is get in contact with President Trump and arrange to go and see him. There was no mention of 
arranging to come and see Leo Varadkar or meeting the Irish government. So again, that's quite a large warning bell in my head in terms of where his focus is and goes back to the letter that Simon Coveney has in the Sunday Times today and back to that strategy, as we said, that really the Irish government are really just going to have to lay out their cards um, very carefully over the next while and just make sure that uh, they are in front of this man and, and understand what's happening. OK, well, Larry, Trump being mentioned here. You're our resident <laughs> Trump expert. Um, talk to me about the similarities between Trump and Boris. Donald Trump has been out this week effectively coming out in support of Boris Johnson and saying he trusts him with Brexit. Do you see the similarities? Have any efforts been made on Boris's behalf to make him different looking to Trump, that he doesn't want to be associated with him? Yeah, well, I, I think some of the speculation about a cabinet and diversity and all those sorts of things that I think he's going to try to, to flag as being d- distinct. Uh, I think Boris needs to be mindful that uh, even though he might be favorably disposed to Donald Trump and elements of the Tory party might be favorably disposed to Donald Trump. Donald Trump remains quite unpopular uh, in the UK as he is uh, around the rest of the world. Uh, I think there are there certainly are similarities between the two, I suppose, in terms of privilege and in terms of uh, a personality that overbears uh, everything. I think in many instances, a loose relationship with the truth. Uh, I think we saw Boris Johnson this week bemoaning uh, all sorts of regulations around fish uh, that he was blaming the EU for. Well, it turns out those were UK regulations uh, that he was going on about. It's very similar to some of the things that Trump says uh, without any kind of regard for what's true and what's not. And then when he gets called on, it just says that's all fake news. Um, so there are there are certainly similarities. Uh, whether, you know, how he plays to those, uh, you know, I think his advisors will be warning him not to not to invite the comparison between the two, but I think it's inescapable. And also, uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, the meetings between the two. Those will be fascinating to watch from a communications point of view uh, and from the images that go forth around the world uh, as to how the two relate to one another. We also have a scenario where actually the US and the UK are going to be thrown together a little bit more as a result of what's going on in Iran Mm. with the uh, seizure of uh, the various trawlers. So, you know, we have a situation here where UK trawlers have a UK trawler has just been seized by the Iranian authorities, um, even though the difficulties are between the US and Iran. So now the UK has ended up getting caught in the middle as a result of all of this. So I think that that those two, the US and the UK, will end up having to converse more. Trump and Boris, more than likely on Tuesday, uh, will end up having to converse more about that. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of that plays out. As long as they keep getting along together, they could end up having a, a big bust up, the two of them, and not get on. We don't know. You well, know? Male ego is a exactly, curious thing. Exactly, given the personalities involved. What would your message be then to, even from a communications point of view, to Simon Coveney and to Leo Varadkar? We're, we're kind of at end stage game here. There's only a couple of months left about Ireland's message, not only to London, but to mm. Brussels. I think we need to stay steady as she goes. However, we have to call out all the nonsense. So if Boris Johnson does continue to come out with an awful lot of nonsense or other British media, and we've seen a lot of inaccuracies that have been floating around, we need to call it all out to make sure that everybody understands the situation that we're in. Just having a look at the Sunday Times, they have an opinion poll looking at porn and uh, how people view porn. Just what did you take from it and what are they saying? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting poll and I think it would have made the front page if it wasn't for the FII story. And I suppose essentially what you get is 85% of people who responded to the poll believed that there should be a registration process in place if you're accessing pornography. So that would mean handing over your credit card details, your passport, your driving licence, etc., 
if you want to get on. And the reason why people supported that was to protect children from accessing and young people from accessing pornography. Because I suppose there's a deeper problem uh, in, in Irish society we're all aware of that uh, children are getting phones very young. You know, their first exposure to pornography is actually generally the age of nine, right? That's some of the stats are showing us. Um, and it's because if you have a smartphone, you go onto the internet, there's no restriction on where you can go and what you can access. And the kind of impact it's having on children is it is leading to early sexualization. Um, it means a lot of children are being exposed to violent sex as well. You know, that's something that's, that's very new. People are very concerned about that. And they're concerned about the way children then behave with each other. Because if you look at uh, the, the sexual offences that are committed against children, about a third of them will be committed by other children and other young people. And I suppose there's a concern that if you look at pornography, you can look at this very violent pornography, um, you might act out some of the, what you see or it, it creates a new norm about what's actually acceptable in terms of, of sexual relations. So I suppose the idea of a register is actually, let's say stop, let's say stop, let's say you want to access pornography, potentially this is harmful to children, let's have a register so to do it. what are Irish people saying here? If we're t- The poll is by uh, Behaviour and Attitudes for the Sunday Times. They're saying that the vast majority of them are saying that to go on any of these websites you'd have to do what? You'd have to, if you want to go on, you'd have to register with them. Um, in the UK, what they've done, actually, they've introduced new legislation and the approach that they've taken is that there's going to be a clearinghouse. And uh, interestingly, that clearinghouse is going to be run by the owner of Pornhub, which is the biggest provider, one of the biggest providers of online pornography. So it's actually another business opportunity for the for the owners of Pornhub. So you're going to have to download your information, can't all your, your, your passport number, your driver license number, your credit card details and you get a pass and you can use that pass or number then to go on to other websites and then access the material. Now the downside of all of that, that legislation has been delayed in the UK because actually they're finding children can find ways to get around age verification methods and there's big questions to be asked about creating big data dumps of people's general information. You know, is it acceptable that your 18-year-old son, you might be thinking about your your 15-year-old, but then your 18-year-old son then goes on to hand over all his personal data and then later in life, you know, there's a big uh, expose of who, who, you know, who are the porn users. Remember Ashley Madison and all those people's information that got exposed. So there's two sides to the story uh, and I think there are solutions. Well, I'm not sure we're looking at the right solutions. Yeah, I, I would largely concur with that analysis, Tan, uh, Tanya. Um, I think it's worrying the idea of handing over all this information, in particular for handing over information to the maintainer and organizer of porn sites themselves uh, and where this data could go. I think it's it's kind of a no man's land. But on the other side, uh, I can understand why at a, at, a visceral react, at, at a visceral level, people are saying we need to do something about this because we were talking beforehand. I mean, I remember being 12 or 13 and looking up at the magazine rack at the top and the top shelf and you know kind of gazing at it that way now all a kid has to do is take out his or her phone and look at it uh, and i think that the, the fundamentally important part here is we are all as parents going to have to have conversations with our children uh, as uncomfortable and awkward as it is i dread the thought of it to be frank with you uh, but we're going to have to have conversations open and honest and frank conversations uh, about the things that they are going to see online there's no way Bre- and i agree with that because um I, what we need to do basically is make it harder 
harder for, for people to get it. Um, and I think by, by going down this route, it'll definitely deter people because I, for one, I nearly hate giving out my email address when I have to sign up for something, not to mind, start giving other personal details. So it definitely which, will deter. Which you could have to give a credit card number, a passport or driving licence to get on some of these porn to websites. you're over 18. Well, the first thing would be people then might have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Or secondly, you're giving a lot of information then. And that's it. And I think there's two issues here. One is access to porn and the other is, is data uh, and what happens with your data. So again, we need a solution. I'm not sure this is, is the is the correct solution, but we do need one, especially in the aftermath of the Anna Creagel trial, trial recently, uh, where we had the two 14-year-old boys found found guilty of murder and it turned out that they had accessed thousands of image, images of pornography on the phone of one of the boys. So again, as Tanya said earlier, the sexualisation is happening much younger. There's much younger access. Right. I don't know what the answer is, but yeah. we do the, need the, something. The, the, I, other, I, the other point, just quickly, is how easy is that stuff to get around? It's very easy to yeah. give somebody yeah. else's credit yeah. card, somebody else's data yeah. birth. It's right. easy to get around can this I, stuff. Can yeah. I just try and inject some yeah. re- reality into all of yeah. this, though, Tanya? Are we supposed to say now that... Like, we were all teenagers here. Are we supposed to say that no one under the age of 18 should ever see an image of sex, porn or a naked body until they turn 18? Despite raging hormones and all of this, they're to have no access to a naked anatomy of a man or woman until they're 18? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting point because, of course, you do want them to have they're, some they're, concept yeah. of that naked bodies exist. And But I, I, I do think there's an issue here. This is around how parents and children talk to each other about what sec- what's normal in terms of sex. And at the moment, children and young people think what they see in pornography is normal. And it's not normal, particularly when it's violent. Um, now, I think that we're not focusing on the right solutions. And if you look at this, like the porn industry, as does all the big net providers, Instagram, WhatsApp, they want your child on their platform because they know they get brand loyalty throughout and they keep, they keep them on the websites. And that's why they all kind of concur with, oh yeah, age verification, we can come up with that. But actually the age verification that they're proposing at the, this moment in time actually just means gathering right. data but from l- everyone l- let's else. Let's stick with the, yeah. the porn yeah. aspect of this though because if we're to believe this poll you know, what the Irish yeah. people feel on this, 85%, the vast, vast, vast majority of people want nobody to access this under the age of 18 and for everyone to give their personal details. Yeah, how, right. how practical is that? I I, I, just th- I think the Irish people probably aren't aware of the Im- other implications of doing that. And there are other ways to stop children accessing porn. Because if you look at most children, they'll say, but some like about one in four will say they access porn after they have gotten a pop-up, right? So these pop-ups, that's how they get people with it you know they drag them in it's, it's very addictive stuff if you banned pop-ups for pornography you definitely would have less people accessing pornography um, and in terms of age verification there's technology yet to come I mean they, they know already uh, some of the industries will know when a child is holding a the phone they can actually tell it's a child holding the phone because of their gait uh, and other ways in which they're manipulating using the phone so I think there's other ways we can try and make the internet safer for children and young people but I think the, the core of it doesn't matter what you do is you have to talk to your child about sex. I think the reality is, you know, everybody has probably seen some sort of form under the age of 18. It just seems to be starting now earlier and earlier. And I'm sure if you ask those 85% who are in favour of this system what age they were, um, you know, you're going to get people who are in, in their early teens. Or they could be like Larry looking up at the top shelf in a, in a shop. Well, that's it. And that's what I was saying Accidentally, earlier Accidentally, Larry, I should <laughs> say. Yeah. Of course. And that's what I mentioned earlier on, that we just need to make it that little bit harder, that you have to go an extra step or two steps to try and get access to this. You but, know? but also, guys, I mean, children 
children are now aware of the dark web and oh, how yeah. you work the dark web. I just I, I want some to make sure. Some of them are on the dark web. For some of them are already on the dark web. You can actually work out how to get on the dark web. Actually, some children some children are on it. There was a big consultation done in the UK of children and young people. And what, what's really interesting is just the difference in awareness around the use of the internet. So you get they talked about there were eleven year olds that understood Cambridge Analytica and the manipulation of the US election and the gathering of that kind of data. And then you had 16 year olds that were uh, handing over all their data and all their preferences and photos of them in all kinds of situations with no re- no understanding of the implications for them later in life. But what does come across from children in those consultations is they, uh, they a lot of them will say they were very disturbed by some of the pornography that they were exposed to. And I think in this debate, we have to listen to them. Okay. We, you know. All right, uh, outrage about something else now, which is insurance, which has been going on for quite some time in this country. And I'm sure lots of you have had some experience or certainly have heard of the experience of getting a renewal of your premium. And sometimes it can go up by 30%, 50%, 90%. There are a couple of people who've had premium reductions as well, it's fair to say. But Sunday Business Post, insurers feel heat over rocketing premiums as injury awards fall. Breed, have you had a look at this? Yeah, I think there's two aspects here. One is for the consumer, the ordinary person, and the other one is for businesses. Um, And not a day goes by on Twitter where I don't see somebody taking a a photograph of their insurance renewal premium and stating that, you know, last year it was 500 quid. How come therefore it my car renewal has jumped to 1200 euro this year, even though I still have my full no claims bonus. I had no accidents and didn't claim anything. So it feels like the ordinary individual is being penalised unfairly for what's See, I don't know what's going on within the industry world. Um, but the poor insurance companies would blame legal costs and the cost of claims and the cost of high court actions and all of that. They say that claims are spiralling out of control. They are. And we had a number of the insurance companies in, uh, in front of an Oireachtas committee recently talking about this and they're saying that they suspect 20% of claims are fraudulent or exaggerated. Now they say suspect. Mm. Um, they yeah. can't actually they prove all of that. They didn't back it up with any, any hard no. data. Any data. And interestingly there was one exchange between uh, Pierce Doherty uh, at that committee and that video was watched half a million times um, by so it just goes to show that people are really interested in this topic but this Department of Justice uh, report that's um, mentioned by Peter O'Dwyer in the front, front page of the Sunday Business Post this morning um, shows that uh, personal injury awards actually fell 9% but oh. insurance 9% but insurance costs are still skyrocketing. So, so uh, and, and this goes on from because I covered the story at uh, the court service were telling us very recently that the, the level of payouts first of all the court service said the number of claims has not increased it was 8,900 in the last mm-hmm. year and that the level of high court payouts had reduced by millions and millions. Yeah. So where's the proof that claims are skyrocketing? We don't have any, from what I can see. Yeah, exactly. I don't there's think. There's no transparency. Tanya. Yeah, there's no transparency with the way uh, this business is operating at all. And someone is telling the porky, if the Department of Justice have a report that said there's been a fall in 9% and yet motor insurance uh, costs have ri- increased by 70%. I mean, I'm one of those people that just got just got a, a new quote last week on my motor insurance. Um, another 150 euros for the year. And I'm a year older. I'm another year of a no claims bonus. 
my car is worth nothing and yet I have to pay another 150 euros. It doesn't make sense. And I think a lot of people are very angry across the country around this. And the question is, is what is behind all of this? And certainly within the charity sector, um, charities are very concerned. We have over 100 member organisations. I spoke to one member last week and she said, we are bracing ourselves for insurance costs this year. And this shouldn't be the case because they changed the law not too long ago to make it more difficult to sue charities, particularly ones run by volunteers and where services are provided by volunteers. And yet the insurance premiums go up over the same period. And what the suspicion behind all of this is the way the insurance industry is behaving. It seems to settle claims very easy. So even though there's clearly wrongdoing on the person who is, there's someone that's making a fraudulent claim, the industry, the suspicion that the industry is settling a claim when there shouldn't be. But but, but, but it's important to say they're fraudulent claims because we also don't want a situation where people who have genuine claims absolutely. are affected uh, by yeah. changes. No, no, absolutely. I mean, the accidents do happen and people People have a right to vindicate their rights when they when they when they are injured. Uh, the insurance companies here, I think. Uh my, my, in my view, the blame rests with them. To be frank, the, the, they are, they're unable to substantiate this claim about fraudulent claims being made. Uh, they like to scapegoat the legal profession in this. Uh, legal costs are too high, speaking frankly, but uh, legal costs are not responsible for these extraordinary increases. Yeah. And I think it's just just to bring it back home. We hear all these stories from small business people who are absolutely crucified by the costs of insurance, and that should not be the case. There needs to be some action, some intervention on this. And Ke- Kevin. Thompson of Insurance Ireland previously said, according to the Sunday Business Post, there was an urgent need to reform steep increases in injury claims costs. You're not buying that, Larry. Well, I just they they, they are unable to provide any substantiation for the fact that there is all these fraudulent claims going on. The reality is the legal profession gets maligned for this an awful lot, but it's really not in anyone's good best in, in any solicitor or barrister's best interest to be involved in a, in a weak case. There's no incentive to do that, and, and to the extent that any solicitors are involved uh, in fraudulent claims they should be struck off immediately in fairness you read stories in the paper and some solicitors are named in it and people it raises eyebrows and people go ah come on why would that be brought before the court? Well, look, you know, for every for every an, an, you know anecdotes make for good news stories, and they get people's cackles but up. They're but they're true. Oh, oh, sure, they're sure they're true, and sure there are claims that might be dubious here or there. But the vast majority of solicitors are not interested in those claims because there's no financial incentive for them to be involved in the case. Rita, I think as well the fact it emerged yesterday that this UK insurance company is now going to stop insuring a lot of businesses that deal with outdoor events and and bouncy castles and all of that type of of industry. What's going to happen? happen here is those businesses are going to close mm. because they have no insurance. The knock-on impact is we're going to have job losses. Yeah. It's going to impact hugely on the economy, uh, local economy in terms of where people are employed and it's, it's you know, where does it go from here? And the, the junior finance minister, Michael Darcy, has called on, on insurers to reduce premiums immediately. But that's as far as he goes. He doesn't yeah, go any yeah. further. So, I mean, yeah. calling on them to do something yeah. is not going to make them do it. So we probably need, you know, going back to this Department of Justice report, we need more, uh, a more in-depth report here and potentially legislation. But yeah. was there not an insurance work, cost of insurance working group? There was, I mean, and they did, they did, uh, Shatter did pass laws with the view to trying to get people to stop going to the high court because legal costs were actually becoming very high in insurance cases because these cases were going to the high court. So he raised the threshold at the district court level and at the circuit court level that what you could achieve through these claims. So can the insurance industry blame then the district court and the circuit court or whatever you call it, those costs? Yeah, what they seem to be saying in that Sunday business uh, uh, post uh, article is they seem to be saying 
there's a lot of cases settling at the circuit court and that's where the higher value awards are and that's what's hitting them. Now, I think we need to see the figures and the statistics behind all of that because we don't have that kind of transparency when it comes to well, how this well, industry operates. Well, the court service did give those figures, but I think the increase was about four or five million on last year. But the but insurance that, companies were saving 40 million on the high court cases. That's right. I mean, that's in terms of the, the, the specific cases and stuff that have come through. But you don't get you get all the you don't get all the settlement cases that happen um, uh, and that don't reach the court. So they're the things that we need to see as well, transparency on and to see what's actually being paid out. And I think the bigger piece here is the government does have a very blunt tool, which it could use if it wanted to. And that's to put a profit tax on some of the industry. Mm-hmm. They could do that. And I think they, they seem to be edging towards that. I think there's so much public uproar uh, around what's going on with the insurance industry. And the insurance industry, it's like they were shocked at the Oireachtas Committee at uh, at how angry the politicians were. And it's like, no, they're actually just reflecting how people feel the, on the ground. Exactly. The, the, pol- the politicians are reacting that way because I was talking to one TD. People are coming into their constituency clinics and complaining seriously about this issue. Small business people who literally are having to close their doors because of insurance premiums. And they have done nothing wrong. And interesting on that profits at Irish insurance companies, they actually rose by 1,300%. In 2017, okay. but the, but so the profit tax could could be the answer. Yeah. But to they're that. not charities. Also, they are there to make money. Uh, Larry, can we talk about? We're given out there about the insurance industry, and you were worried that the legal profession was being scapegoated. This story in the Sunday Business Post that barristers could be getting a pay rise. Yeah, it, the, the immediate reaction of people listening is going to be barristers a pay rise. My God, they're already making enough money. Why? Why do they need that? Uh, I think that needs to be juxtaposed against the realities of the situation. The realities are that they're looking for fees to be restored in the sense that since 2008, these fees have declined by between 28 and a half and 69%, which is an extraordinary cut. Uh, so I think that the case is very well made that they should be restored. The second aspect of this is at the bar and anybody who knows uh, newly qualified barristers, a lot of them are graduates of NUIG who I would still be in contact with, um, they're not making a lot of money. They're in a very, very difficult situation. In fact, uh, money is so scarce that a lot of them have to leave the profession uh, after a couple of years. Indeed, in their early years, virtually all of them uh, are working a second job. Uh, and if we don't pay these people, uh, then unfortunately, we're going to have a profession that is dominated by people with uh, family money, uh, with connections, or per- perhaps with a real niche of expertise in a certain area. That will be all the people that, it's at, that are at the bar. We won't have the diversity in terms of race, in terms of social social class, all these other things. So this is a big story, and I'd encourage uh, listeners to look past the headline and, and grasp the reality of what's happening here. Tanya, is your heart bleeding for our barristers? Uh, so, well, certainly for the, the, the new ones and the junior ones, because like you know what they're, what they're on at the moment. Like in the criminal area, you might get 150 uh, for one appearance, but you what they will tell you is they'll be down at the courts. They could be waiting several hours before they get to represent their client. So it's actually not one hour you're getting, you're, you're actually, it could be four or five hours that you're losing just for that one appearance for that one client and they'd say they don't have enough time to actually meet their clients before and after and they're not being able to give them the right kind of service and as Larry said I mean like a hundred years ago if you looked at the bar basically it was all wealthy elite people who had farms and had money uh, and actually could afford to be at the bar there's about 2,000 people at the bar there's about 2,000 people at the bar now and it's much more open than it's ever been but the ones that are able to stick it out they say 10 years you need 10 years of practice to stick it out. We have um, a Catherine McGuinness Fellowship Programme with the Bar of Ireland uh, and the whole point around that is it's for us to have a barrister 
for a year, for one day a week. But the, the bar is interested in it because it's also a chance to actually help a barrister stay at practice. That's what they want to see. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to use these other methods to try and keep them at the bar because the numbers of them that are leaving the profession are huge. And this is all because, Brida, the... the um the DPP is suggesting this, that they should get a a fee hike if you're a barrister because the barristers could go on strike. They could and it leads back to the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and what they're saying is barristers should be treated differently to state solicitors. Now state solicitors have had a 5.5% restoration but the reason they got that is because they're public servants. Barristers aren't public servants so therefore uh, Deeper is saying that the the barristers shouldn't get it. But I think the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform is actually just being a little bit short-sighted as well because they're also citing that there's no reason to increase the fees because there's no current difficulty in acquiring barristers. And again, go back to what Tanya just said, this is just going to encourage people to leave the profession, uh, either not enter it in the first place or leave at a later point. So I think down the road we're going to see a a huge shortage in that sense. Larry, um, what would barristers' fees be? Do we have any sort of random general figure we could give? Well, I mean, it it depends on what the the appearance is, what they're they're in court for. I mean, you know, I was speaking to a newly qualified, relatively newly qualified barrister recently and, you know, he said that an, an average day sometimes can be to go on circuit and drive two hours and do make a, an appearance after waiting around his time. He said several hours uh, and get paid fifty euro for it for one day's work. Uh, but, but now, come here. That must be the exception rather than the rule. No, if you talk, no, if you talk, not, if you talk no. to newly qualified barristers, yeah. they will tell you the same story. They yeah. will t- they will tell yeah. you the same story, and they yeah. have and they're fighting over every last crumb. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think again, if we care about the administration of justice in this country, and we care and we think that we are committed to a diverse, vibrant legal profession, then I think we need to do. So this is the smallest thing we can do. Uh, I'd also be in favor, for instance, of things like chambers, uh, as they have in the UK, to give uh, real stars, new, newly qualified star barristers, to allow them to pool together uh, for all sorts of reasons. The, the the Bar Council has resisted that to date, uh, but I think that that's one potential reform. But uh, there's a serious issue here. And, I'm, and I, again, I know some people are going to say poor mouth barristers, etc. Uh, but again, the reality of the situation is quite different than the perception. And if you think of it, the, the people who are legally aided as well, I mean, that's where all the set fees... Uh, uh, come in uh, and I think that's a real challenge let's say if your brightest barristers do leave the profession it means you're not getting the best legal advice you could be getting mm. and it's the ordinary person that actually suffers it's not wealthy people that suffer in these kind of situations they mm. know which firm to go into yeah. they can pay the top dollar and they can get off uh, on ordinary on, on, on different crimes it's usually driving offences and drinking offences that uh, p- higher income people get uh, pulled in on right. but then for the rest of us what are we supposed to do so I do think there's a big issue here that needs to be addressed okay well uh, like, yeah. I just want to move on to one yeah. topic, oh, yeah. slightly more lighthearted to do with mm-hmm. office romances in the Sunday Times, where we're told that only one in 10 couples now get together after meeting at work. And this is a lot, lot different, Brida, to even looking at the 90s. This is research from Stanford, but one in I'm 10... I'm way too young to remember the 90s, come on. <laughs> What do you make of this? Yeah, you know, back in the day, and I suppose in the 90s, it was a case that maybe two in 10 met their partner at work, whereas now it's it's only half that. There's a number of reasons, I think, for it. People are just, you know, given the Me Too movement, given the whole focus on sexual harassment in the workplace, um, people are just a little bit nervous to engage in that sort of activity, even if you do 
potentially like somebody on the other side of the desk or on the other side of the building. You might be a little bit nervous to, to make that first approach just in case uh, there's a backlash as such. Um, so, yeah, I think, look, the, the world of romance uh, and meeting your other half has changed well, I mean, so pe- much people over the past number of years. Yeah, people don't even meet in bars anymore, Tanya. No, no, no they, they, meet, meet online. they meet online. Yeah, and look, like, I, mean, I don't know if people are afraid to make the approaches anymore, but actually the majority of people now, they're meeting online. So that's why if I look at my friends, my brothers and sisters, that's how they're all meeting mm. their partners. And then they send, they see, not my family now, but it seems people send photos of each other then as all part of the whole dating experience at this point in time. I just think the nature, the workplace has changed, the culture in the workplace has changed. Probably back in the 90s as well, people were all going off drinking together. And that's kind of more frowned upon actually in, in, in today's working culture. And I think people are a bit more careful. Actually, it's unprofessional. I mean, I'm a chief executive. I probably would prefer people don't date in the organisation because if you're in a small organisation uh, and two people are together, you know, it can cause a bit of a problem mm, in the team. Yeah. And, you know, do they know what's going on in relation to a certain matter? And they backing them up because of the, because they're dating each other. So I, I, I think people are bit much more field. professional in, in the workplace as well and understand but, that this is a problem. It's not in the big organisation. You work in the HSE, thousands of people and it's, it's, a, diff, it's a different kettle of fish. But you work in a small company and organisation. I think the norm is if a romance emerges, one of you needs to leave. You know, okay, because Larry, it's going to impact on, on everyone else. Larry, you can't help who you fall in love with. So what if you are working with them? Yeah, and I mean, I, a story comes to mind. A friend of mine married his boss. Uh, and actually, there were, it was a, a night out, a uh, drinking night out. Uh, and the next morning, they both kind of said to each other, what the hell did we just do? Uh, and anyway, the, the story has a happy ending because they're married for many years now and have two kids. But she had to leave the employer because she didn't think it was it was kind of awkward. Yeah, and you mentioned there the Me Too movement. They're talking about here uh, anti-harassment workplace policies as well. Is there any room for love in the office anymore? I know, it's even, it feels like we've forgotten all about that. But it does, you know, as Tanya said, it does cause a bit of a headache for employers as well because if everything is going swimmingly and the two of them are going out with each other, that's fine. What, what happens when they break yeah. up then? Yeah. That's yeah. the difficulty, you know? Awkward. Yeah, yeah. very okay. awkward. Listen, thank you. We'll have to leave it there. My thanks to my panel this morning. Really enjoyed the discussion. To Tanya Ward, to Larry Donnelly and to Breda Brown. Thank you for all coming in.